Well, if you have your Bibles, keep them open to John chapter 1, because that's right where we're going to be today. Thank you, Susan, for reading that. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, grab a blue one in front of you. Uh, We're going to be on page 739 of it. That's where you're going to find John chapter 1 this morning. Uh, Let's start this with a word of prayer. God, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful that it, it speaks to places in our lives that nothing else does. Uh, we're thankful that it, uh, it, it reveals everything you want us to know. And so, God, we pray as we open up this time where we're going to dig deep in your word that you would reveal everything you want us to know this morning. God, that you'd push me out of the way, that you'd push the distractions of life and uh, the busy mornings and the busy afternoons facing these people. Just push all that to the side and may we hear from Jesus today. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, Ken Galbraith was a, he was a really smart guy. He's, he's dead now, but he was really smart, okay? And he was a professor, and he was a teacher, and he was an author, and he's an economist, and he just knew so much about multiple different things that he became an advisor to multiple U.S. presidents. Uh, he wrote an autobiography, and in it he writes that one afternoon uh, he had had a very just tiring morning. He was just, just exhausted, and so... At this time of his life, he employed a housekeeper named Emily Wilson. And so he came home, and he's like, man, I just have to take a nap. And so he told Emily, please, you're, you need to hold all calls, all disturbances. Don't let anybody bother me because I'm just worn out. Well, while he's sleeping, President Lyndon Johnson called and wanted to talk to Ken. And Emily told the president he was sleeping, and he would, he would call the president back. And you might not know this, but presidents aren't used to being told no. Right, so he insisted again and again, go wake up, it's the president calling, and I need to talk to Ken, go wake him up. And finally, Emily told the president, Mr. President, I don't work for you, I work for him. So he'll call you when he wakes up. So Gabriel wrote that later he woke and returned the president's call, and President Johnson was so delighted he asked Ken to send Emily to work for him at the White House. Right? He just wanted her there. Uh, one of the most freeing, most enabling, most equipping things in life is simply to know your role. It's to know who you work for, it's to know what's expected of you, and staying within those confines actually frees you up to be more effective. Any employee who knows their role is going to be more effective in that role. Any child who understands the expectations their parents have for them are more likely to meet those expectations. Any student who fully understands what's being asked of them has a better chance to learn. And we actually do a lot of damage when we try to live and work and play outside of those roles in either direction. For instance... Right, when we know what we're to do and, we're not, and we don't do it, then that only hurts us, but it hurts those around us. And the opposite is true. Whenever we try to take on more than we should, whenever we try to promote ourselves prematurely or do things that are outside of our role, then we just make a mess of things in the church, in the workplace, in the home. This applies everywhere. Things simply just go smoother for you if you know your role and you live and work and serve and act and respond accordingly. Well, I'm going to argue this morning that all followers of Jesus Christ have a very distinct and clear role. That we've been given a role and the expectations of this role are crystal clear in the scriptures. And that even though the ways that you and I will fulfill and express and carry out this role will vary and be unique to each of us, when it all comes down to it, we all have the same role. Today in the book of John, we're going to get a deeper look into the life and motivation of a character that's already been mentioned twice in the first 18 verses of the book. But in starting in verse 19, John is going to record for us a series of, of four days in succession. And we're going to look at the first today. And on these four days, he's going to tell us what happens in the life of Jesus, what happens in the life of John the Baptist, and what happens in the life of Jesus' very first disciples. And so on this first day, John the Baptist is being visited by priests and Levites and Pharisees. And I want to give you a little background to let you know what has occurred before this exchange. First, uh, most of you know this, but you must know John the Baptist and John the author of the book we're studying are different people. 
Okay, so we've got to keep them separately. But John the Baptist is given great importance by the New Testament writers. He's mentioned dozens of times. He's mentioned more than anyone else in the New Testament other than Jesus. Right, and you see around 450 B.C., uh, so this is about more than 40 years before what we're reading in John 1 occurs, uh, the prophet Malachi passes away. He dies, and the period of the prophets ended. Right, so from that time to Jesus, God didn't raise up another prophet. The people of Israel just simply stopped hearing from God. And this is sometimes referred to as the dark period. And if the night really is darkest for the dawn, this applies to Israel hearing from God. Because for more than 400 years, they've heard nothing. No prophet, no message, no, just, just silence from heaven. And then God broke through. And one of the things Malachi prophesied about before his death is that one like Elijah would come right before the Messiah arrived. And the Jews, in the hundreds of years after this message was received, they've added their own interpretation of this. Right? But shortly before Jesus is born, there's an old priest named Zechariah who's serving in the temple, and the angel of the Lord visits him, and he tells Zechariah that he and his wife, who are both old and had been unable to have children, are getting ready to have a son. And he's to name that son John. And the angel said this. He said, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So fast forward about 30 years, right? Not long before Jesus begins his earthly ministry, John the Baptist begins preaching in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. And his message is one of repentance. He's calling on the nation of Israel and all people to turn back to God. They were to repent of their sins and prepare themselves for the coming of God. And then to signify this, he baptized them, which is how he got the name John the Baptist. And he never did this in the city of Jerusalem. He always did it out in the country, outside Jerusalem and by the Jordan River. And he made quite an impression because all sorts of people were leaving Jerusalem and going out to be taught by John. And many were being baptized. But there was one group, right, who wasn't taking part in this spiritual revival. There's one group of people who weren't excited about this, who weren't supporting it. They just weren't about it at all. And it would have been noticeable had you lived back then because this group was the religious elite of Israel. It was the leaders. It was the Pharisees and Levites and the priests who weren't going out to hear from John, who weren't going out to be baptized by John. But they were noticing one thing. They were noticing that everybody else was. So they began to get jealous. They began to get skeptical, right? Which is why here in John 1, they're going to send out a delegation to figure out who this man is and what's going on. This is basically an interrogation. And based on verse 20, the first question they asked him, even though John doesn't record it for us, the first question they asked him is a load of one, which is simply this. Are you the Messiah? Now, we've covered this before, but the Messiah was the promised one, the one that God would send, a savior that God would send to his people. And it's important to note, I believe, because it paints a picture of the religious environment during the life of Jesus. Because the, during this time, the people of Israel are people in waiting. The more than 400 years of silence from heaven hadn't dampened their belief in the promise of the Messiah at all. So whenever, you see, whenever there's a movement, whenever it seems that God is up to something new or when he's doing something, the first question they're asking is, is it time? Is the Messiah here? Has he arrived? And I think it's really important for us to realize that if for no other reason than it will show us the power that sin and darkness has to cloud our minds and our judgment. Because Jesus in the book of John will come to a people who are actively searching for him and they will still miss him. And you have to give John credit, right? Because he unequivocally answers for them repeatedly, I'm not the Messiah. He never claimed to be, that wasn't his role. And so in verse 21, they continue the question. Look at verse 21 with me. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Or are you the prophet? He answered, no. Right, these questions they're, they're, they're asking him are based directly off their misunderstanding of Malachi's prophecy. By this time, okay, there's a common tradition uh, among, that was taught among Jewish leaders 
was that Elijah himself would return and then perform this really public ceremony in which he would anoint the Messiah and begin the Messianic age. Now that's not in the scriptures anywhere. Okay, but this is what their traditions had, had done with this prophecy over 400 years. It's what they're expecting. And so that's what they're asking John here. Okay, you're not the Messiah. Are you, the, are you Elijah? Are you here to, to anoint the Messiah? And he doesn't even correct their under, misunderstanding. He just says no. Right, and I want you to see in, in this verse the brevity of his answers. Right, he, he's, not, he's not even having this conversation with them. I think these answers are short on purpose because by the time we get to see the whole picture of who John the Baptist is, we're going to discover that he has very little interest in talking about himself. This man has been given a mission by God and he's fully invested in that mission and he will attack that with all the veracity in him. But if you want to distract him from that mission, he doesn't have a whole lot of time for you. So he's going to give this interrogation as little time as possible. Are you the Messiah? I'm not. Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. I mean, he's just not even engaging with them in this. And they get frustrated until they eventually lash out and say, listen, we have to have some answers. Our bosses, right, the people who sent us out here expect us to come back with some kind of report. So why don't you tell us who you are? And this is what John says in verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now there's two things that John did there that I really like. The first is he just answers with scripture. Listen, you can't go wrong with giving people the word of God. It's always a wise move. The secondly is this. These guys have been coming out trying to get him to answer questions about himself. And thus far they've been trying to get him to declare himself as someone really important. Are you the one our whole nation has been waiting for? And if you're not, are you Elijah, you know, the most important prophet in the entire Old Testament? And John's just not going to play their game. And so when they press him to identify himself, he doesn't list off his resume. He doesn't talk about himself at all. He doesn't mention how many people have come out to be taught by him or how many baptisms he's done. He doesn't bring up his miraculous birth. He doesn't talk about how he's the first prophet in 450 years. He simply calls himself a voice. I'm a voice, he says. That's it. All I am is a voice preparing you for someone who's truly great. I'm a voice telling you to get ready for the Lord. Because my entire job, my entire role, my entire purpose is to turn your attention to the one who's coming. You see, at this time, John's role was unique, but God was using him to usher in a whole new phase of prophecy and ministry. During the Old Testament, right, the prophets would all receive messages from God, and these messages were always original. Right? They were always new. They were, they were hot off the press, if you will, and they were revealing God to his people. And last week we looked at Hebrews 1 and how it talked about in times, how in times past, right, that God spoke many times and in many ways through his prophets. But now in the new covenant, now for all of us living after the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, God has revealed himself fully in his son Jesus. Which changes the role of prophets and prophecy altogether because there are no new messages. There's no new revelation needed. Colossians 1 says that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. Jesus has completely and totally and permanently revealed God to us. So John the Baptist was the first in a line of ministry that continues on to us because John's role wasn't to come up with some brand new idea. His role wasn't to come up with a fresh new revelation. His role was this, I'm here to point people to Jesus. And our role is the same. We are to point people to Jesus because there's no other revelation, no other message, no other need than Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus and in his word, God has revealed himself fully to us. Which means, church, that I should give you a warning. 
Right? If someone claims that they are a prophet or that they are a ministry leader or a pastor or even a churchgoer and they claim that they've received a brand new fresh word from God, some brand new message or revelation or new fire, whatever term they want to give it, you can know that message isn't biblical and it isn't from God. Because Jesus Christ is the last word. So starting with John the Baptist all the way down to present day, real prophets and real ministers and real teachers and real servants of the Lord faithfully and consistently point people to Jesus and his word knowing they don't need to and shouldn't do anything else. In fact, this isn't rocket science. Look at just how God has set everything up to serve this purpose. God sent Jesus to reveal himself fully to us. God then sent his spirit to draw people to himself by drawing them to Jesus. God then gave us his word to tell us about and point us to Jesus. Pastors and church leaders are now commissioned to teach people about and point people to Jesus. Missionaries are given the assignment to go to unreached areas and point people to Jesus. All followers of Christ are commanded to go and make disciples by pointing them to Jesus. God established his church to exist in the context of a local community and serve as a light in that community to draw and point people to Jesus. Are you starting to get the drift? Fresh new ideas, new revelation. This stuff simply isn't needed. Everyone on this planet has great felt needs, needs that unless they are fulfilled will lead to destruction and despair. And the answer for all of them is Jesus Christ. The answer to every single question worth asking is Jesus Christ. The answer to every hopeless situation is Jesus Christ. The answer to human sin and suffering is Jesus Christ. The answer to racism and prejudice and divide is Jesus Christ. The answer to every hurdle and obstacle standing before humanity is Jesus Christ. So why in the world would we ever proclaim, put our trust in, invest in, or make much of anything or anyone else? It just doesn't make sense. Instead, John the Baptist launched what ministry in the New Testament is, and it's simple. It's really simple, but it's really powerful. We just must do it faithfully. We must point people to Jesus. And when you do, there's a response. There's always a response. When you point people to Jesus, there are always hearts that God breaks through and always souls that he saves. There are lives turned around, marriages restored, there are eternal differences made. For there's always a reaction when you point people to Jesus, but not all of them are good. Because some hearts simply aren't ready for hearing something outside of themselves. Some don't want to hear about Jesus no matter how much they need him. And so there exists pushback. Sometimes the pushback is quiet. Right? It's kept within the person. Sometimes it's expressed verbally or even physically. And John got that a little of that as well here in verse 24. Because in verse 24 there's a group of Pharisees there. I'm just going to let you know about these guys. Okay? It seems that everywhere God is doing something in the New Testament, the Pharisees are there trying to ruin it. There was about 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. They were the most influential sect of Judaism. They held to the strictest interpretation of the Old Testament law. And in addition to that, they devoted themselves to many of these oral traditions that they came up with themselves. Because you see, everything about them and everything about their ministry was about them being seen. And by the way, that's not my opinion. Jesus himself declared that to be true. In their service to God, they wanted the stage. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be honored. They wanted to be respected. They wanted the worship. They wanted the attention. And so you can imagine they're out there listening to John's answers. They simply aren't moved or attracted by John's humility or exaltation to Christ because they're not about that game. In fact, they're a little peeved that all these people are going out to him. But on top of that, John's sitting there and he won't claim to be the Messiah and he won't claim to be Elijah. And so they have a question for him, which is basically this. What gives you the right to do any of this? 
Who are you to baptize? If you're not the Messiah, you're not, you're not Elijah, you're not a priest, you're not a Pharisee, who, who are you, right? So you're not one of us, so who are you to steal our thunder? And John gives him a great answer in verse 26. Look what he says. He says, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You notice he basically didn't even answer their question. He's, not, he's just not even going to engage them in a debate about who's more important or who's more worthy here the Pharisees because that's just, that's just a gigantic waste of time. Because there is one coming, and he's coming soon, who's greater than John, who's greater than the Pharisees, who's greater than anyway, anyone. And the way John describes him right, is that Jesus is the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And this is one of those things that we need to understand the culture and context of the day to get the power behind what John just said. Because what these Pharisees are interested in, they're interested in having a face-off. Who are you, they asked him. Right? I mean, this is, this is childish, petty stuff. This is like someone walking up to your teammate in a locker room going, man, bro, how much you lift? I bet I bench more than you. Right? I mean, this is, this is the attitude behind it. And John probably wants to say, are you kidding me? What? You want to compare resumes? What do you want to do here? But he doesn't take the time to engage them in this childish debate because he's going to tell them what really matters. And in this day, when John 1 occurred, people like John, rabbis, teachers, they would have disciples. We're going to meet a few of them next week, right? And these Pharisees who were who engaged in this debate, they would have servants. They would have disciples who were training to learn the ways of the Pharisees. And so the entire structure of the culture that day was that the rabbis, the teachers, the Pharisees, other religious leaders would have these followers. They'd have students. They'd have disciples. And in that culture... It was widely known and accepted that a teacher could have his students and our disciples serve him in any way that he demanded, except for one. It would be considered taboo for him to ask them to touch his feet, because feet were filthy back then. Right? There they were no Nikes. Okay? They walked everywhere, mostly on dirt paths, also used by animals, so you can just let your imagination go there. And the act, just the simple act of touching or washing one's feet was reserved or held for the least of the slaves and the least of the servants, those without any honor at all. It was something considered so below people with value that a teacher would never ask his students to do it. And John says this about Jesus, that he's coming and that he's so great, I'm unworthy of even that. I can't even unstrap his sandal. This job considered beneath a student of a master is still too high, too honorable for John to do for Jesus. Because he's simply that great. Because he's simply that awesome and powerful and sovereign and grand. And so, of course, John's going to talk about him. These Pharisees, they want John to rank himself against the Pharisees. But John tells them that's a waste of time. This would be like you and I trying to figure out who's the better basketball player while LeBron James is strolling in the gym. Right? So he's just, John's just going to have none of this. He simply won't elevate, rank, or even talk about himself because Jesus is coming and nothing's bigger than that. Which begs this question. What do people hear from you? You see, I think you can easily gauge what's most important to people based on what they talk about, based on what they think about, based on what they spend their money on, and more. Right? All you got to do is just spend time with someone. And after a while, what's most important to them becomes clear because it, it just flows out of them. They can't help it. I want you to see here in John 1, it didn't matter what John was asked. It's almost like as if the, the question was irrelevant. I mean, this might be a stretch, but I can imagine someone coming up to John and saying, Hey, John, good morning. Nice day, huh? And he's like, Yeah, let me tell you about Jesus. 
Hey, John, what do you think about Pilate's latest decree? I don't know. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's just a man consumed, and he was consumed by the most worthy thing to be consumed by. And so the people who are spending time with you, what are they getting from you? Right? What, what are they hearing from you? Who are you praising? Just based off what they hear from you, would they deduce that you put more hope in your favorite political candidate than in the king of the universe? Would they determine that, that your career, your bank account is of higher importance than King Jesus? Would they, not, would they not learn about him because you only talk about yourself? Right? Those in your life, those you're in relationship with, what are they getting from you? Parents, now what are your kids getting from you? What's most important in your house? And really, don't answer that question with what you think should be most important. Answer it this way. What do they hear? What do you put in front of them constantly? What is it that you encourage them to do? What do you as a family pursue together? See, we talked at the start about how important it is to know our role. And so I want uh, this morning for us at FBN to know our role as followers of Christ. But before I address that, right, I want to speak to those who don't know him. We're going to close this. I'm going to let you know now. We're going to close this sermon by calling everyone in here who are followers of Jesus to tell people about him. And that includes you. And you need to know that we're not sending them out on some sales pitch. We're not, we're not a club that wants more members than another club. Here's what you got to know about us. We here at FBN are just people who have experienced and know how good Jesus is. We were lost, we were directionless, we were stuck in our sins and bound for hell, and he saved us. And he forgave us. We didn't do that for ourselves, he did it. He promised us life forever in heaven with him, and we simply haven't gotten over that. So if we actually believe that, and if we actually love him, and we care and love about you, we're going to tell you about the one who changed everything for us. And we're going to pray and plead for you to turn and surrender everything to him and find life in Jesus today as well. So will you give your life to him today? Man, man we'd love to show you how. Right, find us. We're, we're going to show you in the scriptures how to do it. We're, we're here for you. We're here to point you to him. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, we told you that John the Baptist ushered in ministry as it looks in the New Testament, ministry in the New Covenant, right? Ministry that occurs after the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not a ministry of profundity or newness. New Testament ministry simply points people to Jesus, the full and last word of God. And if you're a follower of Christ this morning, you need to know something. In the Bible, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered all over Asia and other places because of persecution. And he's writing to Gentiles, right? Those who were not of the Jewish nation. And he's telling them how they used to be just not a people, right? They're just random collection of folks wandering the earth. But someone told them about Jesus. Some, and they gave their lives to him. And this is what Peter tells them in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He writes to them now. Now you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is what Peter's writing. He says, all of you from different backgrounds and nationalities, now you're all God's chosen people. Now all of you, you're all a holy nation. You're all the possession of Jesus Christ. And more than that, he says, you're a priesthood. And that's a loaded term. Because the priests were the Jewish people whose job it was to connect God's people with God. 
They're the ones who worked in the temple. They're the ones that performed the ceremonies and offered the sacrifices. They're the ones that were to represent the people before God. They were the ones to draw people to God. And Peter says that all followers of Christ are New Testament priests. That we all now have work to do for Jesus. And our work is simply this. It's twofold. Number one, we are to declare the praises of Jesus who saved us. And number two, we are to proclaim him to the world. This is not the job of pastors and missionaries and a couple awesome sold out people in your church that you admire and never emulate. This is the calling on every single follower of Jesus Christ in this world. You are a priest. You are a prophet, if you will. A New Testament prophet, which means we follow the pattern of John the Baptist. If you're intimidated by this, right? If you've, it's the first time you're hearing it, or if you have known us but never really knew how to do this, and man, we're glad you're here because it's not as complicated as we make it out to be. You don't need a Bible degree. You don't need to be a follower of Jesus for 10 years, 10 seconds of work. Right? And we get a picture here in John 1 by looking at John the Baptist of what this actually looks like. So how is it the year to be a priest, right? How is it the year to be a New Testament prophet? How is it the year to fill this role? It's simple. Look at John 1. Don't self-promote. I'm going to say this to you because I love you. No one, hear me, no one needs to know how awesome you are. It doesn't help because you can't help anyone. Every single person that you meet has great felt needs deep in their soul, and you simply can't do anything to help those needs. The cruelest thing that a follower of Christ can do is to point someone to themselves. We don't need to know how great your morality is. We don't need to know how much you pray. We don't need to know how impressed God is with you. We don't need to know how many years you faithfully served him because none of that's saving anyone. In fact, the only thing that's going to do is drive people away, so just stop it already. Look at these, these men came to John, and all they wanted to talk about was John. Who are you? What's your title? What's this? And John wouldn't have any of it. Because John isn't the answer. Because John isn't the Messiah. Because John isn't the hope of the world. But he knew who was. And Jesus was coming, and so he pointed all who came to him to Jesus. So don't self-promote. Secondly, the thing that John did, secondly, he just stayed in his lane. I mean, think about how easy it would have been when all those people were coming out to see him to think that he was bigger than he really was. How easy it would have been just to tell himself, you know what, I'm the first prophet raised up in over 450 years. I need to be sure people are impressed with me. Think about how easy it would have been for him to then start doing more than God called him to do, but he refused. No matter the crowds, no matter the buzz, no matter the hype, he simply stayed in his lane. He did what God gave him to do and nothing more. Part of you serving Christ, part of you living up to this calling of being a priest is to just be faithful where he has you. Just be faithful with what he's already given you. Listen, maybe you're one of the millions of people who aren't content in their job. Part of what God's calling you to do is to get content. To be faithful where he has you. Right? So whatever job he has you in, whatever neighborhood you're in right now, whatever coworkers you have to deal with, whatever people you have to interact with every single day, whatever exists in your everyday life, your job is to be faithful today and let him worry about tomorrow. Some of the best advice I was ever given was this, let God promote you. Let, let God worry about your future. Let God worry about your advancement or where you're going to go and make this assumption he has you exactly where he has you for a reason right now. So in your home... And in your church and in your career, anywhere you go, serve Christ and make much of him by doing what he's given you to do and do it well and then leave the rest to him.
And I'll tell you this, you were created to worship and exalt and serve Jesus. You were created, there's a deep need in your soul to make Jesus look good. So young people and those who used to be young, okay, one of the best things for your soul is to make someone else look good. So if you've got a boss, if you've got a superior, you've got someone you answer to, someone you work for, one of the very best things for your soul is to make that person look as good as you possibly can. Because the Lord himself will reward that humble faithfulness and it will just do your soul well. And refuse self-promotion. Stay in your lane. Thirdly, just make much of Jesus. Every single question he's asked, John the Baptist finds a way to tell them how big a deal Jesus is. So listen, as you work, as you hang out with friends, as you're at school, as you live in your neighborhood, as you interact with others, eventually someone's going to ask you a question. Eventually a door will open for you to pour into and invest in and help someone else. And when you get those chances, please do not waste them on giving what you think is good advice or telling them about yourself. Please point them to Jesus. In this room today, there's a variety of needs. Right, there, there are some here with doubts and worries about the future. There are others with health concerns. There are some with troubled marriages and some wrestling with addiction and some enduring grief and loss and some facing burdens they can't imagine. Some who are directionless, right, who feels that they just have no purpose in life. There's some who are just exhausted this morning. There are some who still have not had their sins forgiven by God. In this room today, over the course of our two services, people will walk in with all those needs and countless more I didn't mention. And the answer to every single one of those needs is Jesus Christ. Because he holds the future. His grace can melt the bitterness. His grace can bring reconciliation. He brings healing either here or for eternity. He's the one who gives purpose. He gives direction. He solidifies our identity. He breaks every single chain. He has power over every addiction. He comforts. He gives rest. He is the embodiment of hope. And he forgives by his death and resurrection. He forgives all who come to him. No one else does that. Nobody. Which is why it's so vitally important for you, church, to fill your role. Because you and everyone else need him so much. So just refuse to self-promote. Stay in your lane. Make much of Jesus. And lastly... Be a voice. This is the only thing John said about himself. He says, I'm a voice calling people to Christ. It's not a stretch. Listen, it's not a stretch at all to say our world is crumbling. And it has been for a while. And the hope of the world is not government. The hope of the world is, is not education. The hope of the world is not reform. The hope of the world is not economic growth. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ. And so in having Jesus, the local church of Jesus is the hope of the world. And the church, each follower needs to be a voice. Friday morning I did something I don't care to do. But I love my wife, so I did it. I told you last week we, we've been cleaning a bunch of junk out of our house and so Friday morning I set up out there in Riley, Indiana by Dr. Scholl's office for a garage sale. Um, not my cup of tea, but I did it, right? And so it's, you need to picture Riley, Indiana on a Friday morning when the Interstate 70 ramp is closed and the Cory Apple Festival is happening, all of a sudden Riley becomes the hotbed of humanity, okay? There's just, there's people everywhere, right? And so I'm sitting there, no one's buying our stuff, um, which I thought was happening, right? No, one's gonna, no one wants our stuff. And so I'm just sitting there wasting time. And Steve Torby walks up and just sits in a chair beside me. And he changed my entire perspective on the day. Because you know what he said to me? He said, he said look at all these people. 
Just look at it. There's just hundreds of them walking around. And he said this, I wonder how many of them are lost. So I wonder how many of them don't have the hope that we have. You talk about opening your eyes, right? This is John 4 where Jesus says, open your eyes and look at the fields. And it changed my entire perspective in the morning. So, and what happened is I just started praying for each person who would walk by. And it was a really short, simple prayer. God, send a voice. Send a voice into their life who knows them, who loves them, who's been in relationship with them, and who can tell them about the goodness of Jesus. Will you be a light in the darkness? Will you be that voice in the silence? To those who are in despair, will you, will you be a voice that speaks the hope of Jesus? To those who are hurting, right, will you be a voice that, that speaks the power of Jesus to them? Was 29 million babies aborted already this year worldwide? Will the church of Jesus be a voice for the sanctity of human life and the value of human worth? With the poverty rate increasing by leaps and bounds, will you be a voice of love and provision and hope and not judgment? As the racial divide is deepening, not improving, will you be a voice that first just listens and then speaks life and hope and reconciliation. And by the way, this is just an aside. If you won't, just shut up. Because that's better than not. That's better than making the problem worse. Listen, in your neighborhood, in your classrooms, in your factories and athletic fields, in your stores and office buildings and more, will you just be a voice? Right? To those looking for answers but don't know where to find them, will you be a voice? Parents, man, your, your kids, your teenagers, they're going to be bombarded with all sorts of messages that if adhered and followed, right, will lead to misplaced priorities, unnecessary pain, damage to their soul. Will you be that one voice pointing them to Jesus and his word? Teachers, coaches, mentors, counselors, there are kids under your domain and under your influence who don't have fathers, who are struggling to find a place in this world, and who have a great need in their soul to connect to their Savior. Will you be that voice in their darkness? And grandma and grandpa, your, your children are trying to raise your grandkids in a world that will tell them that chasing a scholarship in that weekend soccer or baseball tourney is more important than being faithful to the body of Christ. Will you be the voice telling them that eternity is all that matters? church, our enemy will try and convince people that they don't need God, that all they need can be found in themselves, that they're the answer. Will you be the voice of Christ that speaks into that madness? Yes, man, we, we need to build relationships with people. We need to earn the right to speak into their life. We should model a lifestyle consistent with our beliefs, but eventually, eventually you've got us open your mouth. Eventually you have to speak. No one will be in heaven because your morality was so pure. In Romans 10, Paul asked the question, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone telling them? Church, you've been called, you've been set apart, you've been saved, you've been forgiven, you've been equipped, you've been given a life and experience of grace and you've been given a mouth. It's time to tell someone about it. It's time to be a voice for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the humble example of John the Baptist, who simply put no hope in himself, 
No elevation himself, no, he just, he didn't see himself as a big deal at all, but he could not get over Jesus. He could not get over what Jesus could do in people's lives. He could not get over what they could do for their, for their eternities. He could not get over just how big a deal he was. And so God first, draw people to you who do not know you. God, we pray for any in this room who have not given their lives to Jesus, they would do that today. They would find us, that we could show them in the word what it means. And that today would be the day they surrender their life to him. But God, for those who already have, Lord, just increase our awe of Jesus. Increase our view of him. And I pray that around this room right now, you would begin to put names and faces on our hearts and our minds. People that you have specifically put into our lives in order that we may be a voice. God, it's likely that we haven't even thought of some of these people in this way before. It's likely that maybe some of them have annoyed us or troubled us that we wanted to get away from them. Tell us now, God, if you put them in our lives for this purpose. Lord, help us to love them by being a voice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.